would invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We'll look at verses 1 through 12 this evening. As we look at Mark chapter 2 tonight, uh, it'll be helpful to recall the context on the passage that we looked at this morning there towards the end of Mark chapter 1. Remember, beginning in verses 14 and 15, it's there that Jesus proclaims the message of the kingdom of God. And from there, He calls His first disciples to Himself. He teaches in the synagogue with great authority. He heals the man who comes in with the unclean spirit. He then visits Peter and Andrew's house and heals Peter's mother-in-law. One of the words that Mark is very fond of using throughout his gospel narrative is the word immediately. That he moves very quickly from one event in Jesus' life to the next. I forget the frequency of which that word pops up throughout Mark's gospel, but you come across it in virtually every narrative that you read. One of the reasons for that, I think, is that Mark is pressing his reader to come to grips with the urgency of the work of Jesus Christ. This is not something that is to be delayed, but you are to again reckon with that urgency of faith and repentance, the work of Christ applied to your own life. And from there, word quickly spreads throughout the area that a prophet, that a healer from God has come. And many people flock to the home where Jesus is staying well into the evening, bringing the sick and the injured for Jesus to heal them. Early the next morning, we didn't read this text this morning, but at the end of chapter 1, Jesus rises early in the morning, uh, presumably while the rest of the disciples are still sleeping, to go off and to spend significant time alone in prayer. And we see that in verse 35. Then when Peter and the disciples arise and they find that Jesus is not there, and yet the crowds are still clamoring for his attention, they are confused when they find Jesus. Why is he not capitalizing upon this popularity? Surely this is why he came, to get a huge following to lead the people of Israel to freedom. But instead, Jesus makes it clear to them in verse 38 that this is not the purpose for which He came. But rather, He has come to preach the gospel of good news. Repent and believe. And so Jesus and His disciples then leave that area and go elsewhere to teach and to heal. And so as we go on now to chapter 2, the healing of the paralytic we see in this narrative two important elements in the ministry of Jesus. Physical healing and forgiveness of sins and the relationship between the two of those. So let's give our attention to God's Word. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that He was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And He was preaching the Word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. As far as the reading of God's inerrant and infallible word of truth. Well, so here we have Jesus Again, returning to the region of Capernaum. But notice that this time, the emphasis, whereas before was upon the time of healing ministry that he spent with those who came to him, here the emphasis is upon his teaching. And while Jesus is teaching, again, a large crowd gathers to hear him. And some men bring their friend who is a paralytic to be healed by Jesus. We don't know what, exactly what the man's condition was, but it's clear that he could not come on his own to see Jesus, that his physical condition is so deteriorated that he needs the assistance of others. And the men arrive with their friend to find out that the crowd is so thick that they cannot get through. But they are determined to bring their friend before Jesus, and so they remove the roof right above where he is teaching in order to bring their friends to Jesus. And we read Jesus' response First, forgiveness, and then healing, which we'll come back to in a moment. And we also see for the first time here in the book of Mark that there are those present who are opposed to the ministry of Jesus. And we know that this opposition to the ministry of Jesus is something that continues to escalate. That it eventually leads, of course, to those who are opposed to him, bent upon death, um, crucifying him upon the cross. And so here is this singular event, the forgiveness and healing of the paralytic and different responses to this event. Great joy and great amazement on the part of some, hostility on the part of others. And so as we consider the significance of this miraculous event of healing of the paralytic, let's consider it from the perspective of the different individuals who are involved and what that teaches us about the ministry in the person and work of Christ. Well, first, the paralyzed man. Well, because he is dependent upon his friends bringing him to Jesus, it's hard to know what role he played in the determined pursuit of Jesus. But I think it's clear from the text that this man has faith in Christ. And so whatever physical condition he had, surely he had a role in encouraging his friends to pursue Jesus. And so what was it? What was it, do you think, that this man wanted from Jesus? Why come to him in the first place? Well, clearly he wants to be healed. He has no problem interrupting the teaching of Jesus because that's where his focus lies. And can you think of anything that the paralyzed man would want more than to be restored to health, to be able to walk again? This certainly seems to be his immediate problem. If he could just be healed, then his life would be restored. If he could just hear those words of restoration from the life of Jesus, or from the words of Jesus, then his life would be whole. But notice in verse 5, Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. Here is one who can heal. Here is the only one who has ever walked the face of the earth who has the ability to heal someone who has such a condition, and yet his response is to forgive sins. And this teaches us something very significant. 
it teaches us that the man has a much greater need, something even beyond paralysis, as devastating and as debilitating as that would have been for him, something beyond that is in greater need of immediate attention. And this does not mean that the man's suffering is the result of something that he did, some particular sin in his life. But what it does mean is that any suffering that exists in this world is the result of sin in general. And so the biggest problem we can say that faces all of humanity is our need for forgiveness. Now think about this for a moment. If you were one of the the man's four friends carrying your friend on the mat, you would no doubt think to yourself, if only he could be healed, if only he could walk again, then all of his problems in life would go away. He'd be able to get back to work. He would be able to get around on his own. He would be able to have a productive and a restored life. Everything in his life would be better if he could just be healed. And yet instead of being healed, Jesus forgives him of his sins. Now imagine for a moment that this is where the narrative stopped. It would be sort of anticlimactic, wouldn't it? From your perspective of carrying your friend there, going through all of these efforts to bring your friend before Jesus. Here's this dramatic act, this heroic act on the part of the friends bringing the paralytic before Jesus. Everyone is there on the edge of their seat waiting to see what will happen. And Jesus responds simply, your sins are forgiven. And you're sitting there on the roof holding the rope that's tied to that edge of the mat that you're responsible for. And you look at your three friends perplexed. That's it? And that's typical. I think a typical response that we would have if we were there because we think that we know what our biggest need in life is. We think that we have everything figured out. I mean, how many times do you say to yourself, if only, if only I had more money, if only I had that job promotion, if only I had less pain in my back, if only I had more compliant kids, if only I had better relationships, different circumstances, better grades, entrance into the school of my dreams, if only I had all of those things. And the list could go on and on of all of the things that we think would satisfy. We think that we know what we need, but Jesus is telling us that we're not going deep enough. You see, and as devastating and as horrible as paralysis is, Jesus is saying that this is not the man's deepest problem in life. You think that you know the main problem in your life, but Jesus is saying very simply, you do not. The main problem in your life is not your circumstances. It's not the people around you who are difficult. It's not any sort of physical pain or discomfort. Not to dismiss any of those things, but the biggest problem that we experience in life is not related to those things or even to our suffering. If you think that your biggest problem in your life is those things, then you have yet to see yourself accurately. You have yet to see with clarity that it is your sin that separates you from God. And you can see the paralyzed man perhaps even thinking to himself, if only I could be healed, then my life would be whole. If only I could be healed, I would never complain again. Please, God, let this man be able to heal me. Please let this be the answer. I will be content. My life will be filled with love and mercy and compassion. 
But think about this. If the man were healed, certainly he would be grateful. Certainly he would be amazed. But over time, if that's all that happened to him, if that deeper condition were not met, if that problem of his heart were to remain, then that hardness would just be displayed in some other way in his life. You know, think for a moment back to when you were a child and your birthday or Christmas is just around the corner and you tell your parents, this is all I want. I saw that commercial on Saturday morning cartoons. This is it. If you just get me that, I will never ask for anything again. You probably can't even remember what it was that you asked. What's been so long ago? And of course it never satisfied. And even today we do the same thing. The cell phone, the car, whatever it might be that we think will be it. But it gets scratched, it breaks. Someone else has something better, newer, and it never satisfies. And we may not be so crass in our refined maturity at this point in our life, but the attitude of the heart is the same, isn't it? We look to those things to gratify. We look to those things to shape our identity. And if we don't get them, we become angry. But if we do get them, the emptiness remains. And we're not just talking about stuff. We're talking about approval and affirmation and recognition and respect and comfort and security. Maybe we look to those things to satisfy that longing. Maybe we look to our achievements to gratify. Maybe we look to relationships to quench the desire within. Tim Keller points out that to grant the deepest wish without exposing the shallowness of the heart will simply lead to greater callousness and indifference. You remember in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that unforgettable character Eustace, that bratty little kid, he hates everyone and everyone hates him, don't they? He's mean, he's selfish, he doesn't get along with anyone. And at one point, the Dawn Treader stops on an island and Eustace wanders off by himself and he finds a cave that is filled with diamonds and jewels and gold. And he thinks that he's rich and now he's going to use all of his wealth to pay back those who have wronged him. And he falls asleep in the pile of treasure, but he doesn't realize that the treasure is the hoard of a dragon. And because he falls asleep with that greedy, dragonish thoughts within his heart, when he wakes up, he finds that he has become a dragon, horrible and ugly. And he realizes that he's going to be left on the island, and he falls into despair. But Aslan, the great lion, shows up and leads him to a pool of water, telling him that he needs to undress and jump in. And Eustace realizes, oh, that's all he has to do is just take off the dragon's skin and plunge himself into the water. And so he peels off the skin, but there's no change. And he peels it off again and still to no avail. And he does a third time and no change. And the lion says to him, you're going to have to go deeper. And Eustace tells the story saying, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done to myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there was no lying, on the, and there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. 
And then I saw I turned into a boy again. And so when Jesus, you see, forgives the man's sins, he is driving the man deeper into his heart to understand that this greatest problem of all can only be addressed in the person of Jesus Christ. Our real problem is looking to something other than Jesus to save us, something other than Jesus to satisfy. Our problem is the if-onlys that we attach to life, thinking that that will be it. And until our hearts are changed, that problem remains. And it is He alone who can change our hearts. And so there's great comfort here in this passage for us. Here you have a guy who physically can do nothing just as spiritually he can do nothing, and yet he receives forgiveness of sins. The biggest problem that we all have is our enmity toward God. And the man is spiritually and physically unable to do anything about that condition, and yet he finds forgiveness. Not forgiveness down the road, not forgiveness once he has shown Jesus that he can really be repentant, that he can really change, but forgiveness now, in the present, immediately, from Jesus. So what we learn about the nature of faith is that it's not the strength of one's faith that saves. It's not the quality of faith that saves, but it is the object of one's faith. It's looking, no matter how feebly, to the person of Christ for forgiveness of sins. As we saw earlier, there's another group of individuals who are here witnessing these events a group of scribes who are offended by the ministry of Jesus. And why is it that they are offended? Why are they so agitated toward Him? Look at verse 7. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, it's a completely orthodox statement to say, isn't it? It's it's accurate to say that only God alone can forgive. If Jesus were simply a man, then of course he could not forgive sins. And so they're right to say that only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus obviously is claiming that he is divine, that he can forgive sins because he is the God who has been offended by our sin. So you can only forgive an offense if you are the one who has been offended. You know, imagine that you're standing in the kitchen and your two, two of your children are there with you. And one of them says something horribly disrespectful to you. And your other child turns to the first and says, that's okay, you're forgiven. You'd say, well, wait a second, I'm the one that's been offended. I'm the one who has been wronged. You need to ask for my forgiveness and I need to be the one to extend it to you. And so clearly Jesus is pointing to his divinity that he can forgive sins because he is the one who has been offended. And look at how Jesus responds to their questioning hearts, knowing their hearts, of course, again pointing to his divinity, that he would even know their hearts to begin with. And he says in verse 9, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? It's a very interesting response, isn't it? It's a response that has caused all sorts of confusion and different conclusions for hundreds of years in the church. So which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal a paralytic? Well, to try to answer the question, we need to get at what Jesus is trying to convey. From one perspective, it does seem easier to say 
your sins are forgiven, because anyone can say that. It seems more difficult to say be healed because the evidence would need to be immediate or you would clearly be a fraud. But there's a connection between saying and doing. The question is not simply which is easier to say, but which is easier to do. Which is easier to say and then actually have happen. Clearly, only God can forgive sins. Forgiveness can only truly come through the finished work of Christ upon the cross. And so it is infinitely harder to forgive sins because God alone can do that. As impossible as it is for us to heal a paralytic, it's infinitely more impossible to forgive sins. True forgiveness can only come through the death of our Savior upon the cross. And then in order to prove that Jesus has the authority and the ability to forgive sins as that greater need, he then heals the man. Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this. His action argued for only one conclusion. If his word of healing has been effective, surely his word of forgiveness must have been effective too. And notice what Ferguson is saying here, that he alone can forgive sins. That's the man's deepest problem, and Jesus forgives. But there's no immediate evidence of that forgiveness other than faith on the part of the paralytic. And so uh, as evidence of his power and authority to forgive, Jesus then heals the man. And if it's his word alone that can bring about such remarkable change in the life of this man, immediate change that his limbs are restored to full health, if that happens by the word of his power, then certainly his words of forgiveness are effective as well. And so the question that we all need to ask ourselves The question that we ought to take away from this text together this evening is this. Do you see the depth of the need within your own heart? Do you see that your need is much deeper than that if only that you tend to attach to your own heart and the longings within? Do you see that your deepest need is one of forgiveness that only he can offer because only he brings full atonement? Do you see that the deepest desire of your heart must be changed away from some notion of self-fulfillment towards that vertical dimension, recognizing that it's only in Christ alone that you can find forgiveness? That unless you are made right with God, it doesn't matter what desires you might have fulfilled in this life, you will be infinitely and eternally lost without him. And if you see by God's grace alone where your true need lie, then the only proper response is one of faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Just as we see in Jesus' proclamation of what his kingdom ministry is all about. Faith and repentance. Marks of the Christian life. Ongoing faith and repentance again and again and again. Until either we die or until our Savior returns. Would you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your work of healing and forgiveness as we see it here in Mark chapter 2. May we see the need that we each have deep within our own hearts for the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That as we think and dwell throughout this coming week upon the finished work of our Savior, 
may it bring to our hearts great comfort. No matter what trials we may face in the coming week, may we be reminded that our identity is not shaped by those things, but it is our identity that is in the risen Christ, our union with him, his life for ours, his death for ours, his resurrection that has become ours. Oh Lord, would you bring great comfort and peace to our hearts uh, through the work of your spirit throughout our week. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.